Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca. Good morning, everyone. We, uh, we're just waiting as people pile into the webinar here. I see the number of participants climbing. Um, we had our lovely theme song. Hopefully it didn't uh, blast anyone's ears too badly. And uh, we'll just get started in a couple of minutes. as I see the numbers climbing here. We had lots of people registered, so we're just waiting and uh, we'll get started. As you can see on the screen here, uh, we've got three lawyers presenting today. And, uh, my name is Kelsey Orth. I'm one of the lawyers at CC Partners. With me today are I'm not even going to try left to right because I know everybody's screens look different. So I've got uh, Charles Bins and Susan Crawford. So just watching here. And uh, given the fact that everybody's probably looking to, uh, to get started and we'll allow for people to come in uh, and join us as they do, our numbers are climbing up as we go. Um, so good morning and welcome to another free or complimentary CC Partners live webinar. Um, if you're not watching us live, then you're listening or watching episode 16 of the Lawyers for Employers broadcast brought to you by CC Partners. So I introduced myself, and if you missed that, my name is Kelsey Orth. I'll uh, take care of the moderating duties today, so I apologize in advance uh, if there are any glitches, but uh, we're getting kind of uh, experienced at this now, given the, the, the new normal that we're all working in. Um, for those of you who are meeting us for the first time, uh, CC Partners is a boutique labor and employment law firm exclusively advising employers. As you can see in the tagline behind me, we are lawyers for employers. When we're not working remotely, our flagship office is in Brampton, uh, right downtown, and we have offices in Barrie and Sudbury as well. Online, you can find us at www.ccpartners.ca. So this is actually the sixth webinar we've presented on employment law issues uh, relating to COVID-19 exclusively. Uh, we've done some for a couple different sectors. And uh, for this one, we're going to focus on what happens as we reopen the economy and we know we're not quite there yet but we do have um, a lot of essential businesses who are uh, continuing to operate and more that are being allowed to operate so we're going to cover some of those things today um, just a couple of administrative uh, tips if you have questions there's a q a function on your screen you'll see at the bottom of your screen um, type those in we will try to address them in the Q&A portion at the end. Um, 
hopefully many of your questions, uh, and we got a couple in advance, will be answered uh, as we go through the materials. But if not, we are going to have a separate uh, live Q&A portion at the end where we'll get a chance to, uh, uh, to try and answer those queries that do come in. Um, uh, for those of you who missed it, with me today are Charles Binns and Susan Crawford, two of our other lawyers here at CC Partners. And uh, with that said, I think we will jump right into it. Um, let me just call up the slides and start sharing my screen and uh, we'll get started. So as you can see, we're calling this the Labor and Employment Perspectives Conducting Business in Canada During and After COVID-19. Here's our agenda. Uh, we've had our introduction. We're gonna look at, uh, Charles is gonna take us through a review of the businesses that are deemed essential and those that are authorized to operate, uh, as well as the requirements for operating. Susan's gonna talk to us about the health and safety considerations <clears throat> Uh, and best practices when reopening. Uh, I'm going to address recalling employees and dealing with refusals. And, uh, and then Susan's going to talk about some of the things we've learned um, from the first wave of COVID-19. And then Charles can tell us what's happening with the uh, various adjudicative bodies that are out there for those of you who um, are receiving or dealing with ongoing claims, issues, and, and actions. And then, as I said, we'll have the Q&A period. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to throw it over to Charles and uh, take it away, Charles. Okay, thank you very much, Kelsey. And thanks everyone for, uh, for joining us today. As Kelsey said, I'm gonna try and give you guys, start off with a little bit of context, just talk briefly about the essential businesses that are um, open um, some of the restrictions in general that have been placed on those businesses to allow them to remain open uh, before we get into the more specifics of the, the health and safety and, and what we can take away from um, what we've learned so far and implement into the future for businesses that get to open. So as you can see here, the, the list to date, it has changed a couple times and I'm going to go through kind of the history of some of those changes, but um, if you're not familiar with the list or don't know where to find it, you can always find it at that URL on the, the page in front of you there. Of course, you can always just Google Ontario Essential Businesses and that'll get you there uh, just as quickly. Um, as it currently stands, the list is divided into 18 different categories with four, 44 different items, uh, multiple different types of businesses listed under those items. So I'm not going to go through each um, individual item or business one by one. Like I said, what I'll do is I'll really just kind of try and give you guys a history of where we started, where we are now, and then um, I'm sure you all know there's also an impending announcement um, we're expecting later today. So we can talk a little bit about where we think we're going to go in the future. Okay, so this all started uh, around March 17th, the announcement of uh, the state of emergency. Uh, so that basically encompassed no events greater than 50 people, closed all bars and restaurants except for uh, takeout, pickup and delivery kind of options, uh, closed libraries, child care centers, all those kinds of businesses. But that lasted for a couple of days and then on March 23rd there was a further announcement from the province announcing the closure of all non-essential businesses. Originally that was intended to be for 14 days and obviously here we are in May, it's been much longer than that. 
On April 3rd, the government amended that list of what they deemed to be essential, so they actually reduced it, closed more workplaces. And then that lasted for about a month. Uh, the next update kind of came on May 1st, which was the first little bit of good news that we had in about a month. And the announcement allowed certain businesses to open as of May 4th, so a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and then one thing we have to remember though is that we're not at a stage now where businesses are just being allowed to open and operate as they are used to doing. Um, all of these things, the reopening announcements come with caveats and come with guidelines, uh, which is what Kelsey and Susan are going to talk to you in more detail about. So the, the announcement on May 1st allowed um, certain businesses to open if following proper health and safety guidelines, and then the government followed up with specific guidelines um, sector by sector for the businesses that were allowed to open. Uh, shortly thereafter, on May 6th, the government announced the easing of some restrictions. So, for, for example, they had some specific uh, examples for garden centers and hardware stores and other retail outlets. And again, um, these were combined with certain restrictions. So, um, depending on what type of business you were in, you had to have certain point of sale um, issues that you had to take care of. Uh, you, you couldn't have anyone in the store. You had to have curbside pickup or delivery options. So it's kind of a theme that I think as we go along and more businesses start to get the nod to go ahead and open up, there are always going to be those caveats that you have to be aware of. Uh, as I alluded to earlier, we are expecting an announcement from the government today at 1 p.m. Um, and then based on a CBC News article uh, that came up this morning, I think a lot of the details are yet to be determined, but uh, expecting some good news for the construction industry, uh, retail stores that are not located in malls, certain seasonal businesses. So Premier Ford obviously mentioned marinas and golf courses, so we're expecting something on that today. Uh, certain types of pet services and household maintenance businesses. Um, and again, I, I, I know it, it's good to have some good news. Um, there's no indication about whether that announcement is going to affect these types of businesses over the long weekend or whether it will be forward looking at a week or two weeks from now. Um, so as I said, we'll have to kind of sit tight and wait for the announcement of WTM. And to that effect, obviously, um, you know, we're, we're doing these webinars. Another thing that we have, if you haven't checked them out already, is our blog and our Twitter updates. So we are constantly um, releasing blogs and Twitter updates as these announcements come out. So if you haven't subscribed to our Twitter feed or you haven't been looking at our blog, which you can just get through our website, uh, please do keep up to date on those because we have all the um, most up-to-date announcements from the government and the federal government um, as they come out. Now, so that's kind of the history of how businesses have been allowed to open. Obviously, there are restrictions on those businesses. So in general, uh, what are those restrictions? So the first one you can see there, and this will be the most important, is operating accordance with Occupational Health and Safety Act. And other laws. Of course, this always applies no matter when you're operating, it just applies a little differently. Um, you're going to have to take more steps to ensure health and safety. And so, Susan will go through this in, in much more detail. But as I said before, as the government is making these announcements, they are releasing also guidelines. Uh, and they've done that. Um, they will continue to do that for certain sectors, but uh, where they've released them so far for the construction sector food processing sector, restaurant and food services, agriculture, manufacturing, and long-term care. And then again, you can find those very easily online with websites. 
Uh, one thing I do want to mention that these resources that they are releasing, they are good resources and they are kind of a baseline of what you should be doing. Um, but you really need to take those resources and take a look at your own operations and see if there are additional measures that you need to take beyond those. So they're a good starting point. But when you get to the point of reopening or you are reopened already, you really need to be doing an individualized assessment of your own workplace, uh, your workforce, what the needs are, and go above and beyond the resources issued by the government um, where required. So the second one there, comply with advice, recommendations, instructions of public health officials. So again, that's uh, you know not that out of the ordinary for uh, typical operations, um, but. One thing the government is doing is they are, so they've hired more Ministry of Labor, Health and Safety Inspectors. There's much more guidance out there. Just to make sure that you have any of that assistance when it comes time to reopen. And then, so for the businesses that are not open, um, one of the questions we always get is, you know, what can I be doing now to prepare for a time when you do eventually reopen? And one of the best things you can do, obviously, is look at the restrictions that have been put in place for businesses that are allowed to open. So that's for these last two points here. So, for example, retailers, they got to have alternative methods of sale for curbside pickup or delivery. Uh, motor, motor vehicle sellers, which are allowed to be open right now, are only allowed to do things by appointment only. So these are some of the kind of adjustments that you might have to make, whereby maybe your business doesn't usually operate on an appointment basis, but it might be something that you have to consider implementing as you move forward. Um, so far, the guidance from the government about what you need to do is pretty clear, but you'll want to stay up to date. And as I said, our blog and our Twitter feed are a great resource for that. Um, and then another thing that you can do is always look to different jurisdictions. Um, so, for example, there are lots of articles out there from other countries or other provinces about certain types of businesses that are opening up. For example, I read an article the other day about a chain of salons um, where, for example, already they're letting their customers know they're putting it out there and making it known that when they are able to reopen they're going to be doing things like there's you're not going to be allowed to sit in the waiting room um typical amenities like providing coffee and water for guests while they're in the business are not going to be provided um, they're only going to provide certain necessary services um so for example they you can come in and get your hair cut um maybe you can have to blow dry at home or maybe they'll limit the certain types of services that they're going to be providing is really the base and core of what their business is. So those are all things that you want to think about moving forward. And so those are the restrictions. So let's look forward now. Um, and on the next slide, you can see, uh, as you may have seen already, the government has released a framework for re reopening that was released on April 27. Uh, they were very particular about the fact that there are no timelines involved in the framework, and that's because it's kind of a, a continuous effort of looking at the data that comes in, at the public health data, um, making sure we're in a spot where we need to be before we can progress forward. And it may, it may be a bit of a seesaw. We may take two steps forward, a step back, one step forward, a step back. And this is going to kind of be that feeling out process based on the information coming in. So the first phase, um, which were, so the announcement today, I think is supposed to be expected to be kind of the announcement of entering the first phase of reopening. And that is the focus there is on protecting and supporting. So uh, obviously through enacting emergency orders, which they've already released a ton of already, um, and then taking the first steps to opening certain types of businesses, and then kind of waiting to see how it goes, what kind of information we can gather 
and then progressing. So we don't know how long that phase is expected to take, but it, like I said, it will be kind of a feeling out process and then we can go to say. Phase two is what they call the restart phase, and that has three stages. So each stage will be assessed in a two to four week period. Um, and then at the end of that period, there'll be an assessment of whether you can move on to the next stage. So the type of information that they're looking at there, like I said before, is uh, virus spread and containment, the health system capacity, public health system capacity, and the ability to track incidents tracking in the community. And then the final phase, uh, which we really don't have any information on now, and to be frank, it's probably a bit too early, is uh, the recovery phase, where the government phase we just committed to partnering with businesses and sector leaders uh, in order to come up with a plan when the time is right to get the economy back on track. So again, we always like to talk about what can businesses do now to prepare. So uh, like I said, most of that advice is going to come from Kelsey and Susan. But in general, keep up to date on what other businesses are doing, whether it's in your sector, other sectors, this jurisdiction, other jurisdictions. Uh, because like I said, the guidelines that get released, those are really going to be before what needs to be done. And it's always good to be thinking about creative solutions uh, to, to maximize your business and workforce potential and to be uh, efficient and safe in the workplace and while you get to reopen. Um, and, that's so, and that specifically relates to your obligations under the Occupational Health and Safety Act. So we all know that there's the general obligation to do everything using these circumstances and what that means in light of the global pandemic. Um, kind of takes on a different, um, different sort of uh, flavor. So uh, with more on that kind of concept, I'll pass it off to Susan, who's going to talk more about the kind of occupational health and safety obligations of the employers moving forward. Thanks, Charles. That's uh, a perfect segue. Susan, uh, up over to you now, if you just give me a second to uh, prepare the slides again. Um, I, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, sorry, everyone, bear with me. And uh, here we go. Oh, get out of the way. Oh, I clicked on a link in the slide. Everyone, sorry about that. Okay, Susan, all yours. Okay, thank you, Kelsey. Thank you, Charles. Uh, as Charles mentioned, oh, where are we going? Okay. Um, as Charles mentioned, health and safety is going to be a major consideration in the reopening of uh, the economy more generally and in specific workplaces. Uh, there are some great resources, as Charles said, on the Ministry of uh, Labor and the Ontario government websites for specific industries to give you some guidance in terms of the things that you're gonna to need to be looking at before you can reopen your business. Uh, the focus, of course, is gonna be on the ability to uh, distance physically uh, to contain the spread of COVID, uh, hygiene uh, and sanitation. And we think that there's going to be uh, an increase in the number of inspections as well. So those are sort of the things I think employers should be looking at in terms of uh, what the ministry is going to be looking at, certainly during the initial phases. 
Uh, there's been a lot of scrutiny of workplaces during COVID, those businesses that were allowed to remain open. Uh, we've had a lot of inquiries from clients about employees uh, refusing to work or not being comfortable working. And so we will expect that to increase as uh, things begin to reopen. Uh, and as Charles indicated, there have been a number of inspectors hired uh, to deal with the anticipated overflow of complaints. And the other thing we always ask our clients to do, of course, is be mindful of the possibility of charges under the Occupational Health and Safety Act if uh, you're found not to be complying with the legislation. Uh, for construction projects, that can include a shutdown, and we heard about some of those during the early part of the COVID crisis. Uh, the ministry can issue fines uh, or they can actually charge. So just keep, keep in mind those, those things as we're moving along in terms of um, what you need to do specifically in your workplace to make your employees more comfortable uh, and to avoid having an inspector in the workplace. So as I indicated, we've seen a, a dramatic increase in work refusals during COVID and there is a, a scheme under the Occupational Health and Safety Act or a process by which employees can refuse to work. Uh, and that involves uh, a three-part test or three-stage test where the employee does the work refusal. There's an internal process where the employer tries to rectify the concerns. Uh, and if that doesn't, uh, doesn't resolve the issue, then a Ministry of Labor inspector is called in. Uh, to see if they can uh, deal with the issue and they may end up issuing orders or deciding that the uh, work refusal is not appropriate. Uh, and most of these have been done uh, by teleconference during the COVID crisis. Now we've heard from a lot of our clients. Uh, we've experienced this ourselves as we've been going through this pandemic. There's a lot of fear about people returning to work. Um, general concerns about contracting COVID are unlikely to be um, found by the Ministry of Labor to warrant orders being issued or justifying a refusal to work. Uh, what we've been seeing so far is that inspectors are looking for uh, specific conditions within the workplace that could contribute to uh, or increase the chances of someone contracting COVID as opposed to a more general fear. Now, responding to a work refusal, as I indicated, uh, usually, and uh, in most cases, resolves itself internally. Uh, it needs to be investigated. The work refusal needs to be taken seriously. We generally recommend that the employee be removed from the situation that they're claiming is unsafe. Uh, if you can do that within the workplace, then we would recommend that you do that. Um, but it does have to be properly investigated and documented. You should be involving your Joint Health and Safety Committee or Health and Safety Representative uh, as necessary. And sometimes the complaints or the refusal will come through the, the Joint Health and Safety Committee group itself. So again, uh, being prepared is uh, the best way to defend against these, but um, hopefully uh, you can avoid having the work refusal escalate to the Ministry of Labor. Next slide, Kelsey. So in terms of the best practices, we want everyone to be keeping up to date, 
um, making sure you're compliant with any public health guidelines. There will likely be some sector-specific guidelines introduced by the province. Uh, complying with those will be important. Um, reviewing your health and safety policies, making sure that they're in place, uh, making sure that they're tailored to your workplace. Those are all things that are going to be important as you're responding to uh, issues from your employees. Um, somebody returning to a, a small office environment is going to have a much different experience than someone returning to a large call center where people sit much closer together. And so employers will have to tailor their responses to those concerns based on based on the workplace and the, and the conditions in the workplace. Uh, it, would be, it would be really important to provide training on you know, how to uh, physical distance from your coworkers. People all have their own perceptions and their own personal space. And so it will be important uh, if you can use actual tools, um, you know, the lines on the, the, lines on the floor, uh, we've done things in our workplace to make sure people understand what two, two meters really means. Um, making sure you have proper hygiene, uh, sanitizers, wipes, things to make sure that people feel comfortable. I mean, it's really all about making sure that your employees feel comfortable coming back to work uh, because it is going to be a big adjustment for a lot of employees. Um, some people have enjoyed working from home remotely. Uh, others will be anxious to get back, and so you will be dealing with a, a wide range of reactions and um, levels of comfort in terms of uh, hygiene and uh, feeling safe in the workplace. So the more that you have available to your employees, uh, the better in terms of ensuring that they can return safely um, without unnecessary anxiety and, and stress. Um, we've talked about in other webinars and certainly in our blogs about, you know, the process of, of self-reporting, um, screening obligations, uh, introducing questionnaires, taking temperature, all those things are going to be important considerations in terms of your um, workplace reopening. Uh, and so employers should be thinking about that even if you're not on the list of, of those or the anticipated list of those who are opening. Um, making sure that you have those uh, protocols in place will be important. Uh, and I can tell you as, as the person who has had to source out some of the, the hygiene products during the uh, first phase of pandemic, it's not easy. And so the sooner you start doing that, uh, the better off you will be and the easier the transition will be for everybody coming back to work. Susan, before we move on to the next slide, I'm seeing a couple of questions coming in related to the whole PPE and um, <clears throat> and what you can do. And I think this kind of bears uh, kind of repeating um, with respect to if somebody's refusing to come back to work, uh, even if all the PPE is there and everything's been put in place with respect to the protocols and the training. Um, that's the instance where we're talking about work refusals, right? And, and we've got a couple different directions to go. Is that? Uh, Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I mean, the first step is, is to you know, find out what the, what the basis of the refusal is. Uh, is it a concern of, of having to come back into the workplace and not feeling comfortable enough that, that all of the um, personal protective equipment and hygiene products are going to be available? Uh, is it a concern about having to take public transit to get to work? And so it's, it'll be really important 
to, to understand the basis for uh, the refusal. But if an employee continues to refuse once you as the employer believe you've satisfied their concerns, uh, then the Ministry of Labor will need to be called in. Um, you cannot just proceed to take the position that they are abandoning their position uh, when they raise, raise health and safety issues. Those have to be investigated and if necessary, the Ministry of Labor does have to be called in. Uh, and similarly related um, with respect to federally regulated employers, um, you know, we know that the, the health considerations are dealt with by the province, but does the MOL have any jurisdiction over uh, federally regulated workplaces situated in Ontario? Uh, no, they they don't have jurisdiction. Uh, if a workplace is federally regulated, uh, then the government of Canada has their own um, their own investigation branch. Um, that said, a lot of times the Ministry of Labor will be called in because the employee uh, raises the concern and calls in the ministry, and so there can be some toing and froing about whether a company is actually federally re regulated or not. Um, so you might be in a situation as an employer where you've got uh, Labor Canada, uh, their health and safety group, and the Ministry of Labor vying over who actually has jurisdiction because, you know, the jurisdictions are, are quite clear in some cases and in other cases not. And we have a lot of uh, clients who um, perhaps are federally regulated, but um, maybe if, uh, if it was tested, let's just say they might end up being provincially regulated. So you may be in a, in a circumstance that you have both, um, both the federal and the provincial uh, health and safety teams duking it out to see who has, uh, who has uh, authority over the workplace. That said, the, the compliance issues are very similar um, in terms of, you know, especially in, in terms of the COVID issues. Uh, you won't have the federal government being, you know, less stringent than the provincial government. That answers that question. Uh, so then again, we've talked about PPE, um, making sure that that the um, the personal equipment that is uh, necessary is available. Um, you may not know whether or not someone needs a mask or disposable gloves. Um, it may be that that's more uh, of a, a comfort level, uh, particularly in an office environment. Uh, if you're in a long-term care facility or somewhere where you're dealing with um, patients, obviously, uh, a, a dentist's office or a medical office, uh, then those will be necessary PPE in most cases. Um, but you may want to have those available, uh, again, just uh, for those employees who feel more comfortable uh, with having those. Uh, hand washing stations we've talked about, making sure those are readily available, particularly on construction sites, um, and hand sanitizers. Uh, people will want those close by when they are returning to work. Uh, something that you know we certainly found as a law firm, and, and uh, I'm sure others have as well, uh, it's amazing how much work you can conduct without having to actually do it in person. Uh, so to the extent that you don't um, require your employees to have to be on public transit more than necessary uh, and you can limit in-person meetings, then you should consider that. Uh, if you have a, a large workforce, uh, there's lots of things that you can do to um, sort of cut down on the, the amount of contact people have. 
Uh, you can stagger start times, uh, you can stagger lunches, uh, and all of that will, you know, help in terms of um, making sure that people are able to distance themselves uh, with the required two meters. Lunch rooms in particular can be difficult, and so staggering lunches is one way to, to avoid that. Um, allowing people to leave their lunch at their desk during this time period where that might not have been uh, okay in the workplace, all those things can be considered in terms of making people feel more comfortable. And it's important to make sure you're documenting what you do. If you do have the Ministry of Labor Inspector in, you'll want to make sure that you've um, been able to demonstrate that you've taken um, all the steps necessary and that your policies and procedures are um, in place in the workplace so that you can respond effectively uh, if you're called to justify um, the safety in the workplace. Next slide, Kelsey. So, Kelsey, we actually had you going in the agenda next. But yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, I saw that too. So let's let's do that, and then we'll come back to that slide. Okay. So we're talking now about the the ways to recall employees, and um, let me just. Apologize again. I'm, I'm definitely not a professional Zoom poster, um, but let me see what I can do here. Oops. It's, Okay, so the notice of recall. Um, in a non-union workplace, there's no set form, there's no requirement with respect to Employment Standards Act or otherwise at common law with a specific form or anything like that. You're not even required to do it in writing, but you will never hear a lawyer say you don't or you're better off not writing that down, at least not officially. And so we always suggest that you do it in a written form so that there's a record. Um, what you need to state in that notice of recall, um, the date, the time, and the specific site to which you're asking that employee to report. It may be that given, you know, I mean, I think it's, uh, pretty clear to all of us that uh, when the restart happens, it's not going to be just jumping back in um, at 100% across the board. I mean, ideally, um, employers will be able to ramp up without uh, too much delay, but um, I think it's safe to say that there may be some adjustments made. And so you may end up having people um, in the interest of bringing people back um, sooner rather than later, shifting around their workplaces and, and so on. So that'll be important to make sure you're clear about what you expect from employees. Um, so you want to tell them where, when, and, and uh, what you're expecting them to do. In that time, you heard Susan talk about, um, you know, making sure you have those protocols in place and, uh, and training. And I think, you know, if you're issuing a recall notice, that's a good time to communicate with employees about the various 
measures and protocols that are in place and provide any kind of documentation you can about those things and about what you expect from a behavior and conduct perspective for them and maybe advise them you know that there will be um, opportunities for training once they do arrive <clears throat> so what happens if they fail to return when recalled and we're getting a bunch of questions uh, in the q a about that and we can address kind of some of the specifics when we get to the q a portion but essentially you've heard Susan mentioned it with respect to the Occupational Health and Safety Act or um, you know, work refusals under the, the safety legislation, either way, whether you're provincially or federally regulated. And certainly that's you know, kind of the, I won't say the first step because the first step is to, to ask, ask the questions, right? So some of the questions we're getting in the, in the Q&A um, chat it, uh, are about, well, what about this specific concern or that specific concern? And, and Susan said it, you have to ask what happens, or sorry, you have to ask why the employee is not returning. If they provide an objection ahead of time, then you can address it. But if they just don't return, you can't just go and, and terminate for job abandonment without asking some questions first. And you know the reason we're telling you or advising you to, to get all of this stuff in writing is so that if and when a claim comes, if you do, you know, your investigation, whether it be under a work refusal or whether it be simply, um, you know, asking questions and, and determining that there has been an abandonment of employment, you need to have that documented. You need to show the measures that you've been taking and, uh, and all of the information that you've gathered about the employee and why they say they're not coming back. Um, if you have a union and a collective agreement in place, then there will be specific other considerations you've got to take into account. Uh, you're going to have layoff and recall provisions. Do you have people on layoff right now? Are they on a paid leave? Um, how does that differ with respect to the collective agreement? Do you have a letter of understanding to deal with these kind of unprecedented times? Um, are, the, are the seniority provisions otherwise affected? We'll be, we'll be asking questions about whether their seniority is effective, whether it continued to accrue, all those kinds of things. And you may have specific notice requirements for recall as well. So all those things are going to be specific to your collective agreement. But in general, I think, you know, even when there are requirements under the collective agreement, you still want to include all that safety information. I mean, a lot of it is going to be, like Susan said, about uh, peace of mind. I know you didn't use that phrase, but... Um, <clears throat> Uh, you know, people are going to be wary, leery, choose whatever adjective you want about kind of getting back out there after having worked from home or, or not worked and been in you know, essentially isolation for the last two months. So managing these refusals, and I just wanted to go over some of the uh, specific reasons why people might legitimately refuse to return to work, right? So you heard when uh, Charles was talking about the specific uh, requirement for businesses that are open to follow the recommendations and directives of health officials, of public health officials. So that first bullet point there, you see age. So the chief medical officer of health has advised that all people over 70 should self-isolate given the elevated risk for severe outcomes. So 
whether or not that is specifically protected under the ESA provisions uh, that were the amendments that were made for declared emergencies and declared emergencies infectious diseases, it's certainly a human rights element. And, you know, I think it would be pretty easy to demonstrate um, that there's a need to uh, allow that kind of a work refusal there when there's a, a demonstrated danger, right? And that same goes for other high-risk individuals, whether it's the individual themselves, be it uh, underlying conditions, immuno, immunocompromised, that kind of thing, or a member of their household, right? A, a lot of those are covered by the uh, leaves under, whether it be in Ontario, the, the amendments to the ESA, and I apologize for our uh, non-Ontario uh, <clears throat> attendees because obviously that's where my mind goes first because that's where I am but um, you know the, the different jurisdictions across Canada all have measures to some effect with respect to what uh, what they've introduced on, on job protected leaves um, you know the, the biggest one and I deal with it myself it's it's very hard to imagine being able to come back without having Childcare, um, when you've got kids at home, especially if they're they're young families, and in Ontario it's specifically protected, uh, job protected leave under those uh, ESA amendments that I mentioned. If you cannot report to work due to childcare needs, similarly, if you're under investigation or treatment for COVID nineteen, and under investigation sounds so sinister, but uh, essentially just means your your case is being looked at to see whether you are in fact uh, positive for COVID-19. That is, that is a legitimate and, and protected reason under Ontario statute. And you know, frankly, even if it's not protected under statute, um, I think you would, all employers would do well to, uh, to maintain that even from a safety perspective, right? Um, so when getting out of now the, the, the specific ones that might be protected by legislation, You've got to think about if someone is laid off and they are unable to return due to one of these protected reasons, and we'll talk about other non-protected reasons that might still be allowed or, or permitted by the employer, do you have to change their status and how does that affect um, you know, for them entitlements? Obviously, not your concern directly as the employer, but it will definitely be a concern for those employees who have been laid off and likely collecting the uh, the emergency response benefit payments, and now they're being recalled to work, and uh, they cannot because of one of the the job protected reasons. Well, then that's a leave of absence, and that should, in in our opinion not affect their entitlement but things may change right and so you've got to be clear with them about what is happening uh, to their employment status <clears throat> um, so what about those non-protected refusals that we're talking about or the reluctance to return that, that susan referenced and again you've got to do your due diligence and, and do your investigation right it's not as simple as just saying uh, to an employee who says they don't want to come back okay fine you're done Right. Um, I think in the circumstances, if if that were the case, if an employer took that position and an employee made a claim, any adjudicator is going to take a look at this context and say, 
employer that's unreasonable of you. Um, and, you know, notwithstanding whether you have specific contractual obligations, um, be it under your employment agreement or under a collective agreement, I think the context here requires uh, at least a little bit of investigation and, and asking of questions. Um, but at the end of the day, if somebody does not come back, and especially if you as the employer are confident that you've met the, uh, the requirements for being open and, and all of your health and safety requirements, then it ultimately is a job abandonment situation, right? Um, you know, and, and it may come down to that for some employees. And I think, you know, realistically that there will be cases like that and they'll end up in litigation and, um, you know, the, the, the mental health toll that uh, this pandemic is taking on everyone is, is something that has yet to be quantified and who knows if it ever will be, but I think it will, you know, I think again, we'd be naive to think it won't affect some people's uh, desire or lack thereof to return to the workplace. Um, and, and that's something to think about as well when returning people who may be reluctant is, well, how productive is that person going to be? It doesn't necessarily change your operational needs, but uh, you know, if you're forcing someone to come back and they're just concerned and or don't want to be there, um, it's worth thinking about strategically and, and getting some advice from, uh, you know, from your lawyer about what your options might be. Um, so that last point about how do I retain key employees is, is really some of the things we've already talked about, reassuring people that you're taking all the measures possible, being, you know, perhaps more transparent about your plans for the, you know, for the next several months of the, the restart than you might otherwise be about your general business plans, just so employees get a sense of, you know, you see the slogan out there, we're all in this together. And the same could be said for businesses uh, reopening or, or ramping back up, right? So... <clears throat> and one thing that has been talked about, especially in the unionized context and, and more so in the construction industry than, than others, is, is some kind of standby agreements for, um, you know, it doesn't have to only apply in the unionized context, but especially where the wage subsidy is being, uh, being used or being taken advantage of by the employer. Um, having employees who are being paid on a paid leave of absence on standby and ready to work uh, is important for you to be able to to ramp up, right? And that's one way to make sure that your people are there. If you if you can and are able to uh, use that wage subsidy, um, even if you couldn't before, it may be worth looking at now as we get closer to to uh, starting back up, so that you're not uh, you know kind of stuck in the lurch when you get the uh, the okay to move forward. So with that, I will turn it over to Charles and... Uh... Okay, thanks Kelsey. Uh, so lastly, just to finish off here before we get to the, the main Q&A portion, I just want to talk a little bit about the current status of the various labor and employment relations education bodies. Uh, we're talking about the province of Ontario here. Um, so, like I said, I, I am just going to talk kind of generally about this because if you do have a question about whether you have cheating um, going on in one of these tribunals or courts, um, and your question about 
you know, how is this proceeding affected? If you have a date scheduled, what's going to happen with that date? All that kind of thing. You really are going to want to get individual advice about, um, and you know, we're happy to help you with that. So I'm just going to kind of talk generally. So first slide here deals statistically with yeah. courts and problems. So this is everything from the Interior Court of Justice. Yeah. Um, so naturally, regular operations suspended except for urgent matters. Uh, basically until further notice and uh, the courts have actually been pretty good about releasing regular updates on what it is they're doing and where they're going and how different proceedings are going to be affected. Um, as I mentioned on the slide here, the definition of what is urgent is unlikely to encompass your kind of run-of-the-mill employment matters, so in the courts want to dismiss or affect anything. Uh, urgent has been defined by the courts in civil context as urgent and time-sensitive motions and applications, civil and commercialist matters, where immediate and significant repercussions may result if there is no judicial hearing or if there are outstanding warrants related to civil matters. Uh, and then they list also several kind of urgent types of applications that can be made, but those are generally related specifically uh, public health issues related to COVID-19. So your typical wrongful termination Type case is, is not going to be caught under that urgent um, urgent matter definition. However, the one exception you can see right under uh, the third bullet on the screen there is to do with injunctions. Now, the likelihood uh, of these arisings it's probably mostly contained to the public sector. In fact, we've already seen one with respect to long-term care homes where an injunction proceeding was actually successful. Um, in having basically, you know, the facts of the case were a little bit more complex, but basically forcing long-term um, care homes to live up to certain type of statutory obligations. Um, it is possible that you can see this in uh, private sector, particularly the union is involved. Most of these things come from unionized environments, but we haven't seen any yet. And to the extent that we do, uh, I get to our blog or Twitter feed because I'm sure we'll be releasing something on that. Um, so that was kind of where they stood initially. On April 6th, the court system kind of released an update that they would expand the scope of their operations virtual operations. But what it is each courthouse is doing and what each uh, jurisdiction within Ontario is doing depends on what region you're in. So just taking a look at Brampton, uh, which is where we are here, um, they've said that for civil cases, they're doing pre-child conferences and settlement conferences where settlement is possible and, and it's possible to do remotely. They're also doing consent motions in writing um, and they set out some unique procedures for filing new urgent matters, which is kind of a little more expansive than the definition of urgent matters that was originally released. Like I said, a lot of this stuff um, probably not going to affect most of your wrongful dismissal type cases unless you have consent motions that you can, um, both parties can agree on to keep things kind of moving forward if that's what you're after. Uh, and then finally, so further expansion of services is likely in the future. So that's kind of in the near term and in the long term. Um, so like I said, on April 6th, they announced an expansion and you start doing stuff online. We expect as this drags out and as physical distancing measures kind of continue on into the future, that the court is just going to have to try and find a way to adapt itself to the, that new kind of reality. Um, and there's probably going to be more types of proceedings going on in the virtual space. 
or other types of solutions. So even if you have something in the court system right now that's kind of been, you know, they hit the pause button, it's not necessarily going to be like that indefinitely. The court is going to continuously, the longer this goes on, try to find a way to get things moving. And then in the long term, um, one of the, you know, silver linings that might actually come out of this um, pandemic and provincial shutdown is the modernization of the court system. So we've seen various comments uh, from the Chief, Chief Justice of Ontario being interviewed uh, by several newspaper outlets all the way up to the Supreme Court with uh, Rosalie Bellow, one of the Supreme Court justices, actually writing an op-ed in the Golden Mail a couple of weeks ago about how kind of trapped in the past the court system is. So um, something positive that might come out of this is a little bit of modernization, maybe take some of the time um, out of your typical proceedings and hopefully that's something that implement going forward. So on the next slide, I'll talk a little bit more uh, about the tribunals, arbitrations and tribunals. So these, these are a little bit different. Um, I mean, in general, arbitrators, private arbitrations and tribunals are a little bit less formal in courts. So procedures tend to be a little less ingrained, a little more flexible. Um, so it's no surprise that they've taken a little bit of a different um, however, you see it says most administrative tribunals and private arbitrations close for in-person hearings. Really, I think just about every tribunal and every arbitrator is, will, will not be holding an in-person hearing um, in the near future. And really what they're doing is looking to adopt teleconferencing, video conferencing technology to get their proceedings to continue them on um, and make progress in them. So the extent to which Different tribunals and decision makers are adopting that technology kind of varies based on the tribunal. So for example, in arbitrations, there's already been, I've read about a half a dozen arbitrations already, where the arbitrator is being asked to decide whether a hearing can proceed on a specific date uh, through video conferencing, whether it's uh, the first date of the hearing or a continuation date or whatever, and there's been quite a few decisions released already. And in general, um, the way they'll do it is they'll do it on a case-by-case -case basis. Every situation is different and they want to make sure they're considering each case on its own merits. But the general thrust has been that arbitrators give, because we don't know how long the shutdown is going to last, we don't know how long it's going to be before we can start having in-person hearings again, they want to keep these things progressing as much as possible. So to that extent, certainly kinds of privacy concerns with online forums or concerns over the effective ability to cross-examine a witness or assess their credibility have, have not been persuasive or uh, in private arbitrations. Um, they want to keep things rolling. Now, that doesn't mean that that's going to be applied in every single case. If there's someone who, you know, if credibility is really the only issue, then that might change things or the given situational factors are changing things as well. Things are somewhat different at the Ontario Labor Relations Board. However, and it's kind of different there because in the past they've actually taken a pretty hard stance against video conferencing. Um, that was obviously prior to COVID, but um, they generally don't want to use video conferencing when credibility is going to be an issue. Um, I haven't read any post-COVID decisions on that matter, so I suspect they will be a little bit more flexible, but they've already kind of established that they don't like doing video conferencing in certain situations if they don't have to. So that may 
lead to more types of labor board proceedings being pushed off in the future. Uh, with respect to the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario, I, I haven't seen any decisions from them, but that they are generally more open, I think, to video conferencing, so they'd probably be more in line with private arbitrations than they would be with the labor relationship. Uh, on timelines, so the issue here started on March 18, or sorry, March 16th with um, the announcement of the state of emergency. Uh, an order was made under the Emergency Management Civil Protection Act is suspending all timelines and limitation periods from March 16th onward. So um, if, if something has happened March 16th or onward, the limitation period is not going to start to run until the state of emergency is lifted. So you may actually see some things coming in at a later date than you would expect. Um, time limits, so the suspension of time limits applies to all decision makers tribunals, but the, the tweak with the time limits is that it's at the discretion of the tribunal or decision maker. So far the Labor Relations Board is the only tribunal to come out and say we're actually not going to suspend time limits. They walked it back a little bit and said that uh, they'll suspend time limits for some things, but for other things they won't. But in general, time limits, so the time you need to file a response or the time you need to take some sort of action are suspended during um, this the length of the state of emergency. So again, if you have uh, a case in one of these tribunals moving forward, you're gonna to wanna to get an individual advice about the extent to which that case is affected by the suspension of those time limits. And the last thing there, what if I object to proceeding via video conference? So this is relevant now, as I discussed, there's lots of arbitrations already out there where particularly employers are objecting to proceeding by way of video conferencing, and it's gonna be concerned on case by case basis. Um, as we move forward, though, the likelihood that your case can or will be heard through the use of technology increases. So the um, effectiveness of an objection or the likelihood that your objection will be rejected kind of increases generally as time goes on. And we may actually get to a point where um, the tribunals are coming out and just saying, you know, these types of cases will be heard by a video conference. We're not there yet, but it's something um, something to keep an eye on. And uh, so that, that's about it. That's a general update. Like I said, if you have any questions on here, it's, it's much better to get individual advice about your individual case. But with that, I'll send it back to Kelsey. We can start the general kind of community. Thanks, Charles. And actually, uh, since we skipped that slide, um, thinking it better for a wrap up, I'm going to go back to Susan um, to talk to us about what we've learned um, from and through this process. What is what have employers learned from from this COVID nineteen pandemic? Okay. Thanks, Kelsey. Um, wow, we learned a lot, actually. Um, one of the biggest things that we've seen in terms of giving advice to employers is the whole question about whether or not an employer has a right to temporarily lay off. Um, we've had mass temporary layoffs in the last uh, the last several months, uh, and unfortunately, a lot of employers do not technically have the right to lay off because they don't have that right in an employment agreement or in a policy or past practice. So for us, one of the biggest lessons uh, that we've seen from our uh, employer clients is the value of an employment contract. 
the need to have greater flexibility uh, when you're dealing with a pandemic like this. I have a lot of clients when we draft employment agreements and we recommend the layoff clause, they'll say, well, we just don't lay people off. That's just not something that we've ever done or something that we ever will do. Uh, those same clients have now come back to me to say, what do I do? I can't keep these people employed. I'm a non-essential business. They can't work remotely. Um, and so we've had to work through those issues. And, you know, surprisingly, we haven't seen that many cases. I mean, Kelsey and Charles can jump in, but we haven't actually seen that many cases of employees claiming that they've been dismissed uh, as opposed to being laid off, which is, which is great. I mean, we don't know what will happen when people are asked to be recalled to work. Um, but the whole issue is whether or not a temporary layoff is actually a dismissal, a constructive dismissal, because there is no right in the employment relationship. And this applies to uh, non-union, not unionized environments. So employment contracts, I think, are you know, becoming increasingly important. They're the best way to uh, create that flexibility. Uh, we've had some questions about, you know, can, and we'll talk about them in the Q&A, can we change people's start times? Can we reduce their hours? Um, are there other things that we can do uh, in order to help bring people back safely? Uh, or to respond to the fact that we're just not you know, ready to, to bring people back full time? That's where an employment contract is really important. And we could do a whole webinar on employment contracts. And in fact, I suspect we will be doing one in the near future um, because there's a lot of issues involved. It's a legal document. And so there are legal issues that have to be complied with in order to make sure that you have an enforceable agreement. Um, but we are strongly encouraging employers to take a look at their employment agreements. If you don't have employment agreements, you should be considering them. Uh, there are some special things that you need to take into account if you want to change your employment contracts for existing uh, And so you need to uh, you need to take those into account. Um, but we would say that that would be, you know, from, from the perspective of having flexibility, that would be one of the things that we would be recommending to employers uh, now more than ever. Uh, we've had a lot of questions as well about uh, vacation policies um, and sick leave policies and how those impact the employer's ability to have flexibility uh, when they might not have as much work for people. Um, the Employment Standards Act does, does say that employers can decide when employees take vacations. There are some vacation policies out there where employees have more choice. Uh, and of course, in a unionized environment, the uh, collective agreement is going to dictate what employees' vacation entitlement is. Um, but we've had a lot of questions around whether employers can require employees to take time off uh, as opposed to um, continuing to pay them. Whether employers can require employees to take vacation instead of unpaid days where, when, where employees want to keep their vacation time. And so, you know, looking at those policies is really important now as well um, because we expect that we, we may be here again uh, sometime in the near future if there's a second wave. Uh, the other thing that we've seen a lot of, um, we've seen it in our own firm, uh, and we have many, many clients that uh, have had people working remotely. Uh, and it really does lead to a, a discussion of, of whether or not people can work remotely, whether it's really necessary for them to be in the office. Uh, and if so, if people are going to be looking at alternative working arrangements past, uh, you know, past the emergency, uh, when they lift the emergency response, um, what is it that employers are going to need to have in place? Um, you know, if someone's working from home, uh, as far as the Ministry of Labor is concerned, that is part of their work 
workplace. And so there will be health and safety issues that will have to be addressed. Uh, you will need a strong uh, working from home or remote or uh, tele-remote working policy in place uh, that deals with things like the use of uh, various technology, um, accessing uh, servers uh, and things of that nature. Even things like what kind of chair a person sits in when they're working at their desk. Um, so I think that we're going to be seeing a lot more of that and employers need to give that some serious consideration. Um, a lot of employers were lucky. They were able to get their employees set up uh, remotely quite quickly. Other uh, companies really struggled with that. And so I think that that's something that's, that's come out of this is that employers should be taking a, a close look at, at working from home arrangements and whether they want to extend those uh, into the future. And what happens when employees would simply just prefer to work from home as opposed to coming back to work. The final thing is, and we've talked about this uh, to some extent, uh, Emergency preparedness. I mean, the large corporations and hospitals have extensive um, pandemic practices or plans or emergency preparedness uh, policies in place. Smaller employers likely don't. Um, and being able to secure resources, supplies, remote accessing, uh, and other things that are necessary to respond to uh, a pandemic like this uh, has really come to the forefront in terms of shortcomings. And so we're encouraging employers to take a look at your emergency preparedness, your business continuity plans. What are you going to do if there's a second wave? Um, we have the benefit now of knowing that there likely will be a second wave, maybe a third wave. Uh, and so employers, we are definitely encouraging to take a look at what, what, what you can do um, should we be in this situation again in six months or 12 months or 18 months or whenever that may happen. So Kelsey, those are sort of the, the lessons that, that we've seen through uh, the work that we've been doing for our clients. I don't know if there's anything that you guys wanted to add or we could go to the uh, questions. I know we have quite a few. Uh, I'll leave it with you, Mr. Moderator. <laughs> well, thank you, Susan. And, uh, you know, from, from my perspective, I, I agree. I mean, we've, we've learned so much about the future and I think what's important to think about in the short-term future or, or uh, near-term as we get back into the swing of things, so to speak, is um, get advice. I mean, it's easy for us to say, obviously, because that's what we do, but uh, you, need to, you need to talk not only to your lawyer, but you know, tax and accounting professionals to make sure that you're doing things the right way and availing yourself of everything that's out there in terms of information and resources and, and government programs, right? Um, you know, never has, has the uh, professional consultation uh, business been more urgent in terms of the way things have unfolded over the last few weeks. And I expect that to be the same going forward. Um, but otherwise, I think, you know, the discussion today, obviously, is meant to get people thinking about the right things and, and give you some tips and get you asking the right questions as, as you come back. And obviously, you know, Susan, Charles, and I have tried to provide our thoughts on what we know. But as Susan said, you know, who knows what we'll see when people start recalling or when employers start recalling employees in, in, the, in view of claims and so on. And so we want to make sure that you're in the best position to defend any of those things. It's our job to watch out for the worst case scenario. Hopefully, 
uh, you don't end up dealing with those worst case scenarios and everything works um, because you're doing things the right way and, and everybody sees that. And I think in large part, employees are recognizing where employers are doing doing all the all their best. But um, that's kind of, those are kind of my thoughts. And you see, of course, on the screen, we've got our contact information there. Further questions, uh, contact any one of us or anyone uh, on the team at CC Partners. And uh, our blog and broadcasts are all up there. And, and to those of you who are wondering or asking questions about whether this presentation will be available, absolutely. We will put it up uh, as soon as we can get it properly formatted and, and posted. It'll be available both in video format uh, on the website and through our YouTube channel uh, and uh, through podcast as well if you don't want to see our faces, which is totally all right with us. Um, so with that said, I think we'll shift over to the Q&A portion. So just bear with us for a few moments. And uh, if you've got to drop off, thank you so much for being with us. Um, and we've had uh, great attendance and, and great participation. So we really appreciate it. And uh, you know, feel free to join our mailing list. As Charles mentioned, uh, we do our best to get what we know out there and what we think out there on a daily basis, whether it be through our, our Twitter account or on you know, Facebook page, LinkedIn, all of that stuff, wherever you like to get your news, we're there and we're trying to provide it all to you. Um, but signing up for our blog, which in normal times is usually just a weekly affair, but uh, seems like it's been daily or twice daily lately as things get updated. Um, thank you all for participating and uh, if you can hang on, we will go through some of the uh, questions that we got and, uh, in just a moment. Thanks.